You are now tuned in to the Addicted to Success.com podcast, where geniuses, entrepreneurs, and next level game changers share their juicy little secrets on achieving massive success. This is the advice you wish you heard years ago. Be prepared and take note as we expose the realness and the raw of what it takes to be successful on Addicted to Success.com. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Addicted to Success podcast. Now, today I have a fellow Aussie on the line by the name of Andrew Griffiths, who is the best-selling author of 12 books. Wow. Uh, He's a mentor to many entrepreneurs and a presenter who was featured on TEDx, uh, CBS, Sky Business, Sunrise, and many more places. Uh, He's also apparently, I'm just running off his bio here, he's a a pretty terrible cook, (laughs) but he knows the recipe for awesomeness. I love that, Andrew. Welcome uh, to Addicted to Success. G'day, Joel. How are you, mate? Doing good, mate. (laughs) I know, that's right. We we, we revert straight into Australianism, don't we? And we're both from (laughs) Earth. So we revert straight into into West Australian Australianism, which uh, is even more, mate, how are you going? It is. It's a little country, isn't it? You know, it's funny. I interview a lot of uh, Yankees, right? A lot of Americans on my podcast, so... Uh, yep. It's always a different conversation when I when I'm on here with the uh, the Aussies. It's it's interesting. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Straight away, I'm not sure. Do you think the rest of the world understands us? Uh, I think the rest of the world think we're English or or Kiwis. <laughs> so every time I'm in the US, they're always like, "Oh, are you from England?" <laughs> I, I get asked that all the time as well. I, I love it. Or, or or I get actually asked if I'm from Mexico because that's what I look like. I look like I'm Mexican. <laughs> oh no way. You know what's funny? Just uh, just before we get into this, and I love how this conversation started. We're just flowing into it as a great conversation. But uh, I was uh, I moved out to Miami. It would have been ten years back, and I had somebody come up to me and ask me, "Oh, you're from Australia, right?" And I said, "Yeah." And and they said, "Well, they asked, uh, okay, so do you know Hugh Jackman?" And I thought, "Oh, here we go." Like it was a bit ignorant, so I thought I'd play along with it. And I was like, "Actually, I went to school with Hugh." And the other guy was like, "Really? You look..." you look a lot younger than him. And I, I said, just let this question sit with you for a little bit until it clicks. And then they all just kind of, and then they're like, oh, no, 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 he's joking. He's joking. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's funny. You can, have, you can have fun with it. You tell them there's kangaroos hopping around everywhere. It's, it's funny how you got to come out here. If you're listening right now and you're American or anywhere you in the world, come to Australia. Come to Australia, check it out. It's beautiful. Do you know one of the funniest things that I always experience whenever I'm presenting in the States, and I love this about presenting in America, mm-hmm. is the fact that you get a standing ovation just for turning up. And uh, as a speaker, you, like all you can do is bugger it up from there. So, so they naturally you come on and everyone stands up and gives you a round of applause. And, and you go, well, I should leave the stage now before I completely blow it. You know, that's, I'm not going to get that. Whereas in Australia, the audiences are much more sitting there with their arms crossed kind of going, oh, yeah, this fellow's got to prove that he's worth listening to before I'm actually even going to clap. And uh, tough audiences here. Americans, we love you. Thank you for being so welcoming of us as presenters. That's my yes, chance yes, to thank yes. everyone in America. Yeah, you're right. They're a very enthusiastic bunch. So, yeah, I like Perfect. that about the Americans. They're very optimistic. Beautiful. Uh, wonderful, isn't it? And, and don't you notice it? Again, people, what do you do? They're so interested in you and where you're from. And there's that really great um, inquisitiveness, which I think uh, I find always appealing in any kind of, uh, in, in anyone from anywhere, actually, Joel. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah, yeah. No, I completely, uh, completely agree. So, Andrew, enough about the Americans and Aussies. <laughs> 
let's talk about you because you have written 12 books so far, which I think is a great feat. I think just the idea of writing one book might be pretty daunting for most people. A lot of people mm-hmm. want to write a book, uh, but they just haven't pulled themselves to the point of writing a book. So could you give us a quick rundown? What are some of the books that were uh, a great uh, standout for you that you feel uh, we can draw a lot of uh, inspiration from and lessons from that you have? Mm. Well, interestingly enough, I, I wrote my first book, uh, which was a really simple book, 101 Ways to Market Your Business. And I wrote it uh, about 15 years ago. And on that fact, you know, of a lot of people, you know, would like to write a book and, and they perhaps lack a little bit of the courage. I teach people to write books these days. And, and I see that I see that a lot. It's the inner monkey in people kind of going, well, who am I to write a book? You know, I'm not famous. I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm not, I don't know. I haven't climbed Mount Everest. I haven't done this. Like, uh, like who's going to want to read what I've got to write? And it's interesting to really, part of my job is really encouraging people to get beyond that and to realize that, that, that what people are looking for is your experiences, your take on life, your what you figured out, all those kind of things rolled into one. And uh, because of this incredible thirst for knowledge and content these days, that's what makes this great opportunity for us as authors. So I wrote my first book, 101 Ways to Market Your Business, when I was running a small business marketing consultancy. And all my clients were small business owners. So I'd, I'd tend to get these phone calls. There'd be someone ringing and say, oh, I need more business tomorrow. And uh, I need your help, but I haven't got any money. Uh, so I can't pay you. And uh, so I realized then I was running a not-for-profit, basically. And uh, my, unfortunately, my landlord didn't kind of agree with me. And so I started to write these little fact sheets, like how to get more customers today, how to make a brochure, how to um, how to increase your prices without losing your customers and all that kind of stuff. And one day I looked on my little, and I'd, people would ring me, Joel, and I'd say, oh, look, I'll fax that through to you back in the days when we had faxes. Um, or you can come into my office and I've got all these fact sheets on the wall. The, the information's there. You can have it free. And I wrote 50 of them. And, uh, and one day I looked at the wall. I thought, you know what, if I write another 50, uh, I could perhaps put them together in a book and call that 101 Ways to Market Your Business. And, and I reached out to a few of my friends in the marketing world and said, look, I'm thinking about writing a book about 101 Ways to Market Your Business. What, what, what do you think? And you know what most of them said? They said, Andrew, who are you to write a book? Like, you know, no, no offense, mate, but, you know, you're not qualified. You haven't got a degree. You run a two-bit marketing company in a little town. Like, like seriously, you know, you're going to write a book? And... Uh, and I'm so glad that I completely ignored them. I'm so glad because that's exactly what I did. So I, I put this manuscript together, contacted a publisher. They loved it. And, and in fact, Joel, when they were ringing me to say we want to publish a book, I thought it was some friends at the local radio station making a joke. <laughs> so so I, you know, doing a crazy call on the radio you know, to try and get me because my buddies were all in the radio at the time. And to finally, I, I told my receptionist, just keep hanging up on them. It's not the publishing company. Just hang up on them. It's just the idiots at the radio station. Until finally, the publisher faxed through this letter which said, Andrew, it really is us. We want to publish your book. Uh, please take our phone call. And I thought, oh, okay, oopsie. Um, and so my first book was written and it was hugely successful and uh, around Australia and around the world. And, and again, it just really provided practical advice that I just knew small business owners wanted. And, and I had a really strong desire to help them to improve their lives and to make more money. And I know how hard small business is for people in every corner of the world. And that was my passion. And, and so I, I, 
that first book worked. So my publisher said, hey, do you want to write another one? So I wrote another one about customer service, 101 ways to really satisfy your customers. And that one worked. And I said, well, do you want to write another one? So I wrote a book about how to advertise your business. And I wrote a book about work-life balance, 101 ways to have a business and a life. And I tell everyone that was my first work of fiction. Um, and then and, and on. And, and out of them all, probably my favorite one these days was actually I wrote a book called The Me Myth. And that was a book that I, uh, Simon and Schuster actually asked me to write my, an autobiography. And I, I had an unusual life like many people and I didn't want to write an autobiography. It felt a bit too self-indulgent for me. So I said, I, I, I want to write a self-development book and I want to talk about, um, you know, the benefits of not making it all about you. You know, the benefits of not living in this state of the world revolves around me, the benefits of changing your outlook, about empathy, about communication, about understanding. And uh, and so I wrote the book, The Me Myth, which again, I was fortunate has gone on to become a bestseller and I'm just doing an updated version of that. So, and I've got another thousand books to write in me, Joel. I hope I live long enough to write them all. Yes, yes. You got to get your energy up and you got to find that extra time, don't you? That's a, exactly. that's a tough thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, well, know, I love that. I love that you went the opposite direction when they said write an autobiography and you flipped it on them and said, I want to write a book about not making it about yourself. <laughs> that was exactly, yeah, and that was a real point. So I wanted to bring in my views on, on you know, about how to be, how to be a better human being. And uh, and it just, it, it worked really, really well. And and it's something that I practice all the time and something that I believe in that, you know, every Friday I ask myself a question, how am I a better man today than I was this time last week? And sometimes I am and sometimes I'm not. But I, I think that's my little mantra is, it's constantly trying to be a better, a person in whatever shape or form I can be and uh, I, I don't know it just seems to work for me no that's great Andrew that's great How, could you break down for us because I know that you're a businessman I know that you mm. uh, coach a lot of people in the business field you've obviously mm. written books how is your business structured? What have you got going on right now that's like generating income within your business mm. and what are you known for in in other areas too? It's interesting. It's a really good question, actually. I've got um, probably three areas that I specialize in or three areas that I work in in my business. I've got a small and very tight team, yet I uh, obviously I live in Cairns right on the Great Barrier Reef, so I choose to live in this part of the world. It's a bit like, uh, the, the, a bit like Key West, uh, one of my favorite parts of the world. Um, and the thing here is that uh, for me, I can still do business with everywhere around the world. So I so I guess is it, let me let me, how do I rephrase that? My areas that I work in, I'm known for that. I'm the small business guy in in this part of the world in particular, and what that translates to is not so much that I do a lot of work with small business owners these days, but more so larger companies contract me to work with them to teach them how to better communicate with their small business clients. Um, so we might build campaigns um, around connection. So for example, I did a big project with Hewlett Packard where we, um, we set up some small business engagement kind of sites in China, Korea, um, India, Singapore, and Australia. And I provided all of the content and we built communities in each of those areas. And uh, so I'm advising these large companies, banks, um, airlines, you know, various organizations on how they can find more small business clients, keep them for longer, engage them better, and, you know, and, and build proper relations, which... I find kind of corporate, the corporate world really doesn't understand small business. So it's a great little role for me. 
Another part of what I do is I, um, I'm a part owner and a mentor in a, in a company called Key Person of Influence, and uh, we offer an entrepreneurial program, a 40-week incubator around the world, which is kind of like a personal branding program. And uh, so we run that in Australia, Singapore, England, and America. And uh, and it's just great. We get people like everyone from personal trainers to financial planners to accountants to chefs, and they do this 40-week program. And then we, you know, my job in there is I teach them how to write content and how to write books uh, and and really kind of suck, you know, nurture that that book writing out of them and, and, and teach them how to do it and publish it and leverage it and all the rest of it. So, so that's the second big part about what I do. The, the third part is I do do a lot of keynote speaking. So I talk all over the place. And, and really a lot of that, Joel, is around um, what's happening in the world of small business entrepreneurialism, a lot about personal development, about overcoming, um, overcoming stuff. As I mentioned before, I, I had a really unusual childhood and uh, I grew up as an orphan and had a lot of violence in my childhood. And, uh, and a lot of people you know, want me to come and talk to their groups around that overcoming and not being stuck in what happened in the past and you know about resilience and all types of things. So I, I, I do a lot of presenting on a lot of really varied topics. And, um, and of course, you know, I develop programs. I teach people to be professional speakers. I run programs on a regular basis. So I, I do a lot of stuff. But in the same vein, you know, I love doing that and and I'm extraordinarily energized and passionate about everything that I do. Oh, sorry. And I also write a lot of columns, like I'm the only Australian columnist for Inc.com out of uh, out of New York. So, you know, and I, and I write for all these other kind of places and, and that increases as well. And, uh, and, and that gives me a chance to really, I guess, have a broader reach uh, with people all over the planet and share my views and thoughts and ideas as well. Uh, I, I still people is always quite amazed you can do that stuff from a little country town like Cairns uh, with 150,000 people in it. And, and I just go, look, man, it's just geography is just a state of mind. You know, being an entrepreneur is a blood type and, uh, and, and you hunt out opportunities. You, you, you chase them down. If you think you can't, well, you probably can't. So You make a great point there and I like that you shared that. What do you mean by entrepreneurs are a blood type? Oh, I, I, I think thing, that it, this is the thing. I, I just want to chip this in real quick. I was reading yeah, this sure. psychology book uh, the other day, and I can't. Is Francis somebody? He's an old school uh, psychologist from the 1800s, and he uh, did a lot of research on the whole nature versus uh, nurture mm-hmm. uh, thing. And he he essentially believes that you know we are born with these uh, abilities, and that um, yes, we can learn new skills and techniques through practice. Uh, but at the end of the day, nature trumps over nurture. What's mm-hmm. your take on that? And then how can we tie it into what you just mentioned? Because I, I, there, there is this thing where some people say, oh, well, it's just not in my DNA to be an entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. Oh, I, for me, it's intriguing having worked with many, many uh, business owners over many years, 30-odd years, I guess now. I had nothing in my upbringing which was entrepreneurial. I had no one who, you know, it was very staid, it was very, uh, it wasn't orthodox, but there was no entrepreneurialist, there's no business ownership, there was none of that in there. Yet, uh, you know, I bought my first business when I was 17 going on 18 and, and I was unstoppable. That's what I wanted to do. I worked here and there for a few companies, but I realized that I'm unemployable and I need to be an entrepreneur. And, and, and my point about it, I think being a blood type, for me, I don't know where it came from in my family tree, but I certainly had it. And I see that in a lot of other people that they, that they, 
they either are working for someone and yet they're yearning to be their own business owner for whatever reason. I'm working with a guy at the moment is a, is a partner in a in one of the big four accounting firms in Australia. And he said, I've just been craving being my own, you know, running my own business for the last 30 years. And if I don't do it now, I'm never going to do it. And it's like, it's just this, this kind of yearning thing. But in the same vein, I see people that are running businesses that shouldn't be. They should actually be working for someone else because the the uncertainty, the the erratic nature sometimes of business, the 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 the, the pressure and all the rest of it, it's, they're actually not suited for it. They're in love with the idea of being a business owner, but the pressure and all the rest of it is probably not doesn't suit their type, their personality type. Um, but I find a lot of what I do, and I like to say that I empower entrepreneurs globally, a lot of that is helping people to kind of realize their dream of becoming a successful business owner or a successful entrepreneur. So most of the time, I'm really just nurturing what's already hidden within them. And uh, I'm just kind of giving them, uh, helping them to, to let it out. And, uh, and it's that buzz that people get when they create a business, when they make something work, when they create something and someone buys it. And the the ultimate entrepreneurial feeling that you you know without a doubt, and I'm sure plenty of your listeners, uh, plenty of listeners to this, they know that feeling, and uh, and that to me is it's it's bigger than us. And even though we'll go through the craving, go oh you know I wish I should just get a job and work for someone, it'll be easier. Mm-hmm. They know they never will because it probably isn't you know it's not going to work for them because once once you know they realise their blood type is entrepreneur. Then you know if you're an E plus blood type, then uh, you know you can fight it, but it'll win in the end, I believe. Or you'll feel very frustrated that you haven't lived up to that. Yeah, yeah, I think hunger is a really important uh, mm. element, right? You need to be hungry, and that hunger needs to have such a, a massive vision attached to it that you just—that's all you see. Yeah, that's a, that's a fabulous point. And one of the problems that I encounter with a lot of entrepreneurs when they get a bit older, and uh, you know, I put myself in that same category, I'm 50, and or 50 in a few weeks, and you look at it and kind of go, well, you know, you're kind of successful, you got a bit of money, you, it, whereas, and it's easy to not be as hungry. You, you got to work harder to make sure you, you are the one who fires yourself up, you're passionate, and that, whereas, in the early days, you know, man, I, I freaking made every mistake known to mankind in business. I, I lost hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars and, and I, I just did everything possibly wrong. I had no idea what I was doing most of the time. And that story rings for me for most of us. But but you had this hunger to, to be successful and it was never really about the money, but it was to be able to say, I'm running a successful business, whatever that means. Uh, for you, and I think that's what drives us on. So uh, I do work with a lot of people now that are older. That I go, you got to refine. You you got to find that hunger again, whatever it might be. Maybe you want to leave a bigger legacy. Maybe you want to change the world. Maybe you, it's time that you go. Well, you got to make enough money now so you can go and retire in the Bahamas or whatever your thing may be. Um, but most of the time with older people, it's getting back to, oh, well, you know, I want to raise a million dollars and, and give it to an orphanage in Thailand or it, it's a bigger thing than, than creating a business. And that's one of the transition zones and another way to find their why or their hunger or whatever you want to call it. Yeah, yeah. Purpose is very important. You know, uh, mm. it is interesting because a number of clients that I coach, I find, especially the ones that have been in the game for, for you know, quite a while and they feel like stagnant. They're sitting there mm. and they're just, they feel unhappy. And what I usually find is they've had a vision and they've got there and then they realize it wasn't as big and amazing and glorious as they thought it would be. Uh, and the second thing is they got, they got there, but then, you know, and they celebrated, but they don't have a big enough vision to carry them on. 
Really true. Really true. Or sometimes a vision changes. And, and and they don't quite know what that means. You know, maybe sometimes, I see that sometimes that people, you know, that men in particular often have a vision that ultimately there's going to be a big reward and that will be the payoff for the family sacrifice while I'm building this business. Somewhere along the line, the relationship breaks down and they're not in that family unit anymore and they kind of go, well, what am I doing all this for? And, and, and that, that doubt comes back into it. And you know, I've been in those situations where I'm going, well, what do I need to work so hard for? What do, what do I need to do that? And I think we've got to go through that and, and find our why again, whether it be a philanthropic, whether it be just, I want to do this for me. I want to prove to everyone that I can do this. Or most importantly, I want to prove to myself that I can do this. And I think we need a bit of a check-in with our purpose on, on, a, on a regular basis because if your purpose has changed and you're not actively doing something about it to refine it or to find what it is now, you lose your motivation, you lose your drive. Why get out of bed in the morning? And, and, and that's a tough space to recover from if it goes on for too long. Yeah, you've got to find a why that makes you cry. That's what they say. Wonderful. Yeah, isn't that a great line? I just love that. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. All right, Andrew. So what are the common mistakes that you see a lot of entrepreneurs making now, especially the new small business owners that step in that you uh, you coach? Mm, it, um, it's a really good question. And it's, it's certainly, it's a little bit different uh, to, to how it was maybe when I was doing this 10, 15, 20 years ago um, in, in terms of, these days, for a lot of entrepreneurs, there's not as much there's not as much skin in the game as there used to be. Mm-hmm. So, you know, typically in the past, for me, I would have been coaching someone who's got their house on the line, and maybe you know they've invested three or four hundred thousand dollars in a business. You got to make it work. It's not a it's not a, a will I won't I type thing. It's a it's it's you know, or if it goes broke, who cares? I lose twenty grand on my credit card. Well, I'll pay it off. Um, these days, it's it's a much it's much easier to walk away from a business. Uh, generally, I know that's a huge generalization, and I don't mean to upset anyone who, who's you know got their house on the line. But that's one of the big changes that I've noticed that people are not as um, at times they don't give it long enough to work. And, uh, and, and I, you know, that's just the way that it is now. The expectation is that things should be working from day one or pretty soon on. And, and sometimes that impatience stops people from letting a business actually reach its success because they stopped just before it was about to get successful. Um, I, I see that as a bit of a challenge. Um, so in a way, are you saying that people like dabble? They don't really go into marketing? Yes. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what I'm trying to say. And that whole thing, and I and I see this great opportunity for businesses now to niche down, niche down, niche down, and really, you know, own that space and uh, and really um, and just do what you do so extraordinarily well. And if you do that. It's just amazing. Everything comes your way. You know, I'm seeing it in Australia. We've got a real trend happening now where people are in the primary producers, where people are saying uh, they're living in Sydney or Melbourne. They're saying, well, I'm going to go and buy a small farm, 40 or 50 acres. I'm going to grow 30 cows and I'm going to make camembert cheese and I'm going to make the best camembert cheese in Australia. And there's this real, you know, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna master it, or I'm gonna make this wagyu beef. It's the best wagyu beef, or I'm gonna make and this, and my goal is to be the best, or I'm gonna brew some beer, or do make vinegar, whatever it might be. I'm seeing this wonderful thing, and I, and I look at that, and that really makes my heart sing when I see people doing that. Um, and and I think that's the crux of the other common problem that I see now, or another one. If people perhaps, everyone goes to a great length to tell their potential customers how they're exactly the same as their competitors. 
And, uh, and, and, and what I mean by that is, if you go to 50 financial planning websites, they'll all use exactly the same language. They'll all talk about security, long-term, rah, rah. If you change the logo of the company, you could keep the same websites for all of them. They, and they all say the same line, we're different. Yet every single one of them specializes in telling you how they're exactly the same. And, and, and I think that the mistake here is people haven't really embraced storytelling in their business yet. They think that no one cares, yet that's the only thing we care about. I want to know why. I want to know the story of the cows. I want to know why you want to make the best camembert in the world. I want to know about your property. I want to know what wildlife is on there. I want to know what your recipe. We, we want to know about the person behind the business as customers and consumers. And yet a lot of small business owners still out of insecurity they just tell you what products they offer. You know, you're going to an accountant. I've yet to meet an accountant anywhere in the world that doesn't do tax. Do we really need to say, hey, we're a tax specialist? You know, everyone is a tax specialist. Yeah. Tell us about what makes, what floats your boat as an accountant. Do you want to help small businesses become giant businesses? Do you want to help, you know, small business owners to buy their first home? And as an accountant, that's your area especially. And the reasons you struggled to get your own first home, you understand what it takes, those kind of things. So I think we, we that's what I'm saying, that they've got to get better at telling their story. Um, and, and do you see that, Joel? I'd be interested in your view. You deal with a lot of people, man. Yeah, no, I do. And I think it's important to open your mind to also then open your message. Uh, I, I interviewed a lady by the name of Sally Hogshead. She's a, like a lead marketing expert for some mm, of the Fortune mm. 100 companies. She's amazing. And mm. she shared something with me. Probably the one standout line that she really shared with me that sits so well is that it's easier to be different than it is to be better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She lives right by that in every time she walks into that uh, room with McDonald's or Pepsi or, or like just whoever she's uh, uh, working with, she she just revolves around that one line. It's just let's be different. Let's how can we make this different? Great. I've read some of her books actually. She's an extraordinary lady, and what what a great line that is. You know, let's be different in a in a world where same same is not rewarded. It was there was a time though where people wanted that consistency. It, it's just it ain't that time anymore. Yep. And, 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 you know, and I spend a lot of my time, Joel, as a bridge between um, the older traditional kinds of businesses and the newer, younger entrepreneurs and business owners. And it's really interesting. I, I spend a lot of time presenting to large conferences and I'm looking at it, a room with 500 or 1,000 business owners in a traditional business that's about to be turned on its head. And, and, and you can see that there's almost a bit of a look of fear in the crowd when you start talking. There's a bit of fatigue as well where people go, well, have I got the energy to, to do what needs to be done to, to take this business that's been really successful for 30 years, but now it's struggling and I've got to do it differently and I just don't know that I've got it in me. And, and uh, it, it kind of, that's, a, that's hard work for me and I, and I do get in front of a lot of those audience and I'm kind of pleading with them to say, you know, you don't have to master everything. You don't have to master social media overnight, but you definitely have to be different. You definitely have to tell your story better. You definitely have to, you know, get the fact that, that it's a digital world. You, you you know, you've got a ton of opportunity. You, everything you're doing is just, you, you've got to think about it differently. And uh, and not all of those businesses will make it as a result of this. Not all of those industries are going to make it. You know, the, the, the industries are being Uberized. 
and uh, you're either left standing or you're not. And 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 that's a, it's, you know, for me, that's just a big part of my work these days is, is doing what I can. People call me in to try and, and help their industry transition and read them the, the reality of what it looks like for them and maybe take some of the fear away and give them that practical, practical tips. I think... Um, the quote I use all the time now is Alvin Toffler's uh, from 1975, the guy that wrote Future Shock, and that's the illiterate of the 21st century won't be those who can't read or write, but those who can't learn, unlearn, and relearn. And uh, and, and I think that is just the true, the, the most true statement um, for doing business these days that I could possibly imagine. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. You have to be able to adapt. You've got to be malleable in the market, mm. otherwise you won't survive. I, I worked for a Japanese shipping company, my only job that I really held for a few years. Uh, I worked for them for five years as their international sales manager. I was, I'm a commercial diver by trade, so I, I started working with them putting in pontoons out on the Great Barrier Reef for tourists. Anyway, I got, um, I got decompression sickness and got retrained in, in sales. And uh, when I started this role with them, they gave me a, this booklet, which was their 100-year vision. And I really kind of imagined it was just going to be kind of a promotional fluff and bubbles kind of brochure. Aren't we wonderful? And uh, and it was the exact opposite of that. It was it was a document where they had they had a team of futurists. So this was 25 years ago, I might add. Um, they had a team of futurists in a little room in Japan, and they basically identified every potential drama that could impact on the shipping company, from wars to pandemics, global, you know, economic disasters, earthquakes. You know, you name it. They identified them all, and then they turned around and said, "Well, okay, if that happened, so let's say this situation happened, how would we react to that, and how would we be able to come out stronger as a result of that, and uh, that happening? How could we make our company even better as a result of that pandemic, or even better as a result of that natural disaster?" And and it really, it's, it's a big, a lot of Japanese philosophy around this, of course. But I, I thought it was a wonderful thing that, that they looked at adversity as an opportunity. Every adversity makes us stronger if we're smart enough to look at it as an opportunity, not as a disaster. And I think that um, I learned a great deal from pondering that and spending time with these guys and spending time in Japan as well, you know, around that concept. And seen it in, I've seen it in action. They, they used to make 75% of their revenue from shipping fossil fuels around the world. That's dropped down to like 25%. Now they ship people. You know, the highest value cargo, which is there's a never ending supply and, you know, all the rest of it. They transition that in a in number of years. They ship water around the country. I'm sorry, around the world now because there's a huge demand for water. They, they just It was a very clever thing. The, the key to survival in business and thriving is the ability to be able to evolve and uh, not just change, but evolve, being able to survive better in the new environment. And that's a powerful message, I think. Yeah, 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 to grow into your environment and also to grow into your vision for the future. You know, exactly. I, I heard that uh, Donald Trump does this too, where he has like a team of people where they set this like contingency plan and he'll go into a, a meeting with them and be like, all right, we're about to put up this new building. What could go wrong? And they mm. have like hundreds of different things that could go wrong. And then what is the, uh, what is the plan that we have in place to to resolve that so when he goes in and he actually builds a building he's already thought about the hundreds of different things that could go wrong so they mm -hmm. don't really get caught off guard they've got uh plans in place and i think um that's that's smart business you know it really is no, you can take no, the no risks, surprise but yeah. calculated risks and i heard there was this uh study with entrepreneurs and they they assessed thousands of entrepreneurs and what they found was the most common trait that kept popping up is that entrepreneurs that are super successful are risk takers but calculated risk takers. Mm. 
Absolutely. I, I would too. agree with that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think that's the truth, isn't it? That, again, we're not... Uh, we're not uh, we're not afraid of risks, and risks are a part of our day to day life. That's how we operate as entrepreneurs. But I, I think again, as we get a little bit older, we get a little bit wiser, and uh, and uh, the risks the risks are balanced against where we're at in our life and what it what it uh, you know and our past experiences, so that then we're able to better better assess the risk. I think I took a lot of risk when I was earlier when I was younger, and I didn't really know what I was doing. Um, but those risks all, some paid off financially, but even the ones that didn't pay off financially, they paid off with experience. And, and I kind of look at it, if I lost 50 grand or something when I was 20, which I did many times, I guess, um, I, I thought, you know what, somewhere down the line, that's going to save me a million dollars. That's how I look. I looked at every time I, I lo- buggered something up or lost money, that was an investment in my future. And, and, and rather than beat myself up about it, I, I was grateful. That's, that's going to save me a fortune somewhere down the line. And, uh, and, and I found that a really helpful approach, actually. Yeah, it's interesting you say that. You know, I was speaking with John Asaraf uh, mm-hmm. a few months back, and he said the exact same thing as you. He said he used to take a lot more risks. But then he, then he kind of said, well, well, maybe it's because I've learned so much now from all the, all the lessons that I <laughs> have come my way that I, <laughs> I, I don't make as many mistakes. So maybe I'm still taking risks, but I'm not really realizing it because uh, I'm taking more calculated ones. So yeah, it's interesting yeah. how that works. I can't wait to get to that stage where you know, I, can, I know I've learned so many lessons and I can kind of at least have an idea of the landscape and can move uh, at, a, at a faster rate around the, uh, the challenges. So yeah, no, that's, that's awesome. What do you I think, think you've, the, you've got a very big future ahead, my friend. I have no doubt at all about that. Uh, Absolutely no doubt, Joel. No, I appreciate that. I appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, what are the fundamental philosophies that you believe have changed your life uh, and, and affected the way that you actually run your business? Mm, great question. I uh, My fundamental philosophies, for me, uh, there's a few things I, I think. My... I, I have an incredibly high level of integrity and, uh, and for me, my reputation and my brand, personal brand is everything. It's my number one asset. It's my most prized possession, if you want to call it that. That's how I look at it. And I'll never do anything to harm my reputation. I, I just uh, I, I believe that that in its own right will get me create opportunities. It will feed me. It um, it will it, it will give me everything I need if I look after it. So I nurture that all the time. I'm very careful who I partner with. I'm very careful who I do business with. I'm very careful and considered in what I say and do all the time. And I don't see that as a chore. I don't think that's a hassle. It's just, for me, it's just what I do. So I think looking after that um, that brand, my brand is is just part of me and what I do, and I've done it for many years. The, the second thing for me is I'm in, I'm just hugely respectful of people, and uh, and I really make a, a strong point of treating people really really well. I do that genuinely. You know, I'm a kind kind of person. I'm a generous person. That's my nature, and I would never be anything else. But I, I treat people, whoever they are, from whatever walk of life they are, whoever they may be, with absolute and utter respect. And and you know, it's interesting how that has paid off for me over many years. Not necessarily financially, it's not around that, but just the people that I've met and the situations I've been in and the extraordinary people I've met really have mostly come from that because I've taken the time to stop and listen to someone or help someone or just be caring enough. So uh, I think that respect side of things is really um, an important part of of the philosophy uh, in my little world as well. 
A third thing for me is is this you know constant and never ending improvement. Um, like I, anyone who knows me and anyone that I teach or mentor or whatever know that I'm a little bit OCD. And uh, in terms of being a speaker or an author, the reason that I'm successful is because I, I do what most people aren't prepared to do. You know, and that may be from a speaking point of view, the extent of my preparation and coordination and engagement with my clients and audience, people just rave about it. Same with my, you know, promoting and leveraging books. It's like the simplest of things, I say to people, I leverage and promote my books every single day of every single week, of every single month, of every single year, of every single decade. And, uh, and, you know, there is always a pile of books on the end of my table, you know, 30, 40, 50 books that I'm sending to the media, new clients, potential clients all around the world. I'm sowing seeds every single day. And I really kind of consider myself to be more of a farmer and uh, where I'm, I'm literally sending out books. Hey, a new CEO at an airline. Hey, folks, you might like a couple of books on customer service. Congratulations on the job. Read an article in a newspaper. Cut it out. Go, right, I'm going to send those people some books. As a, you know, whatever it might be, I'm doing that kind of stuff every single day. And, um, and I've seen so many... So much proof of the sowing seeds. I'm extraordinarily patient as well, Joel. So I've sown seeds. So, you know, I see the reason that I write for ink now, you know, that's a prime example. Many years ago, I gave a guy a book, uh, one of my books. Nice fella. There you go. There's a copy of one of my books. He actually passed it on to a guy who was at Flying Solo, the solo community here online. They then invited me to do, go online with them and do some interview stuff. Then they were doing some stuff for CBS. So they introduced me to CBS. And I uh, do a lot of stuff for them in Australia and Asia. Then one of the guys at CBS left, Eric, and he's joined Inc. as the big honcho for Inc. in New York. And he invited me to be a writer for them. So by being giving a book away 10, 12 years ago, it's funny how those seeds go all the way through to working for CBS, writing for Inc., you know, doing all these other things. And I've got all these kind of little veins going off, which of all the seeds that I've sown. So I think taking a long-term approach is probably what I'm trying to say there. And uh, I, I don't know that I was patient enough to do that when I was younger, but uh, but I, I, see the, I see a lot of benefit from all of that hard work that I did over the years really paying off now with an extraordinary network and access to wonderful people, amazing people. So that's just a few of my philosophies, I guess, Joel. I could talk for days about that kind of stuff. <laughs> But yeah, yeah. that's uh, I don't want your ears to fall off, mate. No, mate, no. Look, it's nothing but value, and uh, you know that's the story of my life. That whole uh, you know doing this, and then this happens, and that happens. Seriously, it's it's crazy when you put it out there. I think when you have the intention of uh, helping others and delivering value, it comes back tenfold. It really does. Yeah, and, I, and I couldn't you can't understand it until you actually involve yourself in that and do it, and just not try and think about it too much. I know that whole thing of like, if you can help enough people get what they want, you get what you want and all that, that Zig Ziglar quote. It, mm. it, it's true. And I never like really understood it until I started doing it. And I saw that it came back. It came back in fulfillment. It came back in uh, new opportunities. It came back in new relationships and new connections. So uh, it's worth yeah. it. It's totally worth it. You got to put yourself out there, right? The world bends for those exactly. that are action takers, that are creators, that are movers and doers, right? Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And people think that, that we do that stuff for the money, and, and it's so wrong. It is that is not the reason why why those people who are truly successful are doing it. I don't believe it, it is really for that. Zig Ziglar is one of my favorite uh, authors and speakers of all time, and that that direct Texas drawl that he had uh, when he was alive, and that whole you know help enough other people get what they want and. 
And if you, that is really your underlying philosophy. Every interaction, every meeting, how can I help you? What can I do for you? How can I support you? Um, wow, some amazing stuff happens. And you just, you've got to do it for the right reason, which is a strong innate desire to, to help others make the planet better, all of those things. And of course, it's, it's not that tangible. It's not that, well, I did this and then I got that. It doesn't really work in that way. It's hard to get that on a bottom line on a P&L or on a balance sheet, that kind of, you know, the corporate karma, I tend to call it. But I, but I believe that it pays off big time. And the, and the more those who get it will, you know, like you, I, we are fans, we'll rave about it all the time. And sometimes it's a bit harder for other people to, 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 to understand just how powerful that is. If it's all about the money, it's really successful in my experience. Yes, yes, 100%. Uh, Andrew, you have written a number of books. You've written 12 books now. And I remember seeing an article floating about somewhere online where you talked about why writing a book is the best personal development um, <laughs> program or, or, or exercise that you can do. Uh, I'm in the middle of writing a book right now, so I, I get it. Cool. But can you, can you explain <laughs> this and like and share with us why? It's like give us a, Give us a reason why writing a book is the best personal development exercise. You know, it's interesting too, Joel. That um, that was published on Inc., uh, wasn't it? I think that article oh, from okay, memory, yeah, yeah. and um, and it was it was interesting from that point of view that I thought, oh, I wonder if anyone will be interested in this. And it's I don't know, it's it's been hugely popular. Uh, that article, six, seven, nine, eight thousand shares or something or other, and you know, a hundred, couple hundred thousand page views, and I'm kind of going, wow, seriously, people really resonated with that. Anyway, the the, the um, for me, having written many books, I know that that how much I had to sacrifice is a term that I'll use, but, but really invest. And, and I think there's a, there's, a, there's a lot of things. If you're going to do a personal development program, writing a book, first and foremost, the number one thing, you, you've got to be disciplined. You know, you, you really, you know, you've got to be disciplined enough to be able to do it because one of the, the key parts of writing a book is you've got to sit down and freaking write the thing. And uh, most people don't get to that point. I bought a dollar for every time someone said to me, you know what, one day I'm going to write a book. You know, well, the first part is you've got to be able to sit down and write it. And, you know, I used to write my books from midnight till dawn because that was the only time I had available because I had a really busy business. So I'd literally have a shower, get ready and go to work, you know, go to run my business for the day. And I did that, for you know, for, for the first three or four books almost. Um, so you need to be disciplined. The, the second part about it is when you're writing a book and you know that people are going to read it, the little demons in our mind start to play tricks with us and go, well, you know, gee whiz, people are going to read this. What are they going to say? What are they going to say about me? What are they going to, what are they going to say if this is a load of rubbish? And, uh, and, and the voices start to kick in for a lot of people. And so that kind of makes them slow down the writing process. So you've got to have, you've got to be confident enough in yourself to, to say, well, you know what, I believe that what I'm writing about is of value to people and I'm going to write it. So you've got to have that kind of conviction uh, around uh, what it is that you're doing. And, and that's, that's what makes this um, that great, uh, uh, I think, personal development side of it as well. And, and that, those two points alone are in many ways um, some of the, the, ch the biggest challenges to overcome, the discipline to write and the confidence that you've got something to say. The other things that then, you know, you go into that with, you know, why it's the greatest personal development uh, book again is you've, you've also then got to learn how to promote it and, and leverage it. And I, and I think that what comes out of that then is often you've, you've got to be comfortable with um, 
with believing in yourself enough to be able to talk about something that you're proud of. And I think that that's an interesting little point that a lot of people, you know, really do struggle with as well, where they kind of go, oh, well, you know, again, like, uh, you know, I've got to talk about myself and I was brought up not to talk about my myself and, uh, and, and, you know, again, how do I overcome that kind of a um, concept? Um, what else do I do? Oh, people have got to put on there that they've got to put like, they've got to tell everyone else that they're writing a book at some stage. And, uh, and, and, you know, that's a really big thing for a lot of people to overcome. One of the first things I do in my writing programs is I say to people, right, I want you to leave today and I want you to put in your email signature. I'm the author. I'm writing a book which will be released in middle of 2016. And I say, even if you don't know what the title is, just put that down in your email signature. Once you know a working title, put the working title on there and tell everyone you know that you're writing a book. And that's the number one hurdle that most people struggle with. They go, oh, God, really? And it's like, well, if you're not prepared to tell people, then you're really probably not going to write the book. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and that's, you know, that's kind of truth. Um, the, the, and the last part I'll say there is, is that, um, you know, you've got, to be, you've got to be able to say no to people. And, and, you know, when you're, I always laugh and say this, whenever I sit down for a day of writing, I guarantee, I look outside and the sun's shining, there's butterflies, there's, you know, puppies running across the field, there's a beauty pageant, they're giving away money down the road, there's free, you know, every distraction known to mankind appears on the day that you've, you know, de dedicated to writing. It's never pouring with rain and gloomy and, and you're, you know, you, it's always everything outside looks so much better. In fact, when you're writing a book, your house will never be cleaner. You, you know, you'll be polishing underneath the car and we'll become masters of procrastination. Oh, look, I just I think I'll go and, and polish the gutters on the roof, you know, because for whatever reason, procrastination kicks in. So, so you've got to be disciplined, but you've also got to be good at saying no to people. And that means you've got to be able to say, sorry, I'm writing a book for the next two months. I'm not doing anything else, but I'm I'm hiding away. Please support me in this endeavour. And uh, and and a lot of people really do struggle with that, Joel. That they've got to ask for help. They don't want to say no to people. You know, um, certainly. Well, I don't have any problem with that these days. But I did when I was a little bit uh, younger. But um, you know, so all of those kind of things all roll into one uh, when when you look at writing a book. Did any of that help you? It did. I think that point of like putting it out there that you're, you're writing a book. It's like burning the boats and just going to going to writer's island, right? And just being there and like, there's no way back out. It's just like, I'm a writer now. This is it. This is what I'm doing. Yeah, you did have you to have, have that commitment. Did, how did you feel even saying that before? That, hey, I'm writing a book at the moment. You know, was, was, did, how did you feel inside when you said that? At first, uh, I had the idea. Like, I thought, yeah, I need to write a book because it's the thing to do, right? And I, I was thinking that for a couple of years, to be honest. Uh, mm. But it was in the back of my mind. I, and I pushed it back because I was like, nah, I don't like, I'm just thinking of this because it's, it's kind of like the, the protocol of be, being an entrepreneur or online success and so on. So uh, what happened was I actually got approached by a company uh, for a, a book deal. They said, let's, you know, jump on a call. They wanted to know a little bit more about me because I was writing articles for entrepreneur.com and obviously addicted mm. to success. I've written over like 500 articles on there. So um, wow. yeah, they, they approached me and they're like, look, we think you've got great content. We want you to write a book. And uh, that's when I started to bring that idea in the, from the back of my mind to the forefront and really think about it all. And, uh, you know, it's a process. It really is. Like, I, I haven't committed 100% to a publisher because mm -hmm. I have, a, a, I think, a lot of, uh, and, and you probably, you understand this for sure, a lot of the uh, proposal, book proposal that you share with these publishers, a lot of it is about how you're going to market the book. 
because they didn't That's do a right. lot of marketing themselves. So it's really like right now I have these things in play that I'm going to use to leverage to get a better advance so I can have a bigger and better team that we can really have impact with this book. Because I want this book to get in the hands of as many people as possible for the sake of changing as many lives as possible. Right uh, so, reason. So, right reason. Well, yeah. And if I can add to that too, Joel, just some advice in that. You're, you're so right now that what's changed in the publishing space, for starters, I actually think publishers are becoming less relevant. And, uh, and, and I push a lot of people down the self-publishing route because you know, publishers, I think, are struggling to find their way a little bit in their role in the world. And that said, though, what they're looking for now are people exactly like you, like me, that, that have a large you know, social media um, family or you know, a community, etc. that they're looking for people that are better able to promote their books in new media, so online, social media, etc. And you kind of look at that and go, well, really... You have all the power in that relationship. I mean, these organisations they can they can print your book and do and design it and all the rest of it. But in the same vein, with that side of it, you go well. Really, almost like what do you need them for? There's plenty of companies that can help you do that, and uh, you can almost self-publish it. And I believe if you do a great job, you actually then have all you don't have any issues with content. It's all your content. Remember, as soon as you go with a publisher, it's their content. Um, if you use your book as a leveraging tool and you want to buy lots of copies to give it away, um, you've got to buy it at an at a expensive rate. I know with my guys, I, I have to buy my books at 50% off retail, which is still $12.50 to $15 a book. Uh, I'm moving to self-publishing nowadays because I can get my books for 3 or $4 a book and I know how to market, leverage it and drive it. So another landscape that's been Uberized. And, uh, and, and and change completely. So, and I'm not saying don't go down the publishing route with a mainstream publishing, Joel. I'm just um, perhaps suggesting there that you are really in the driving seat of those negotiations, which I think you've you've obviously already realized that as well. So, yeah, mm. I know that for sure. Look, one of the things that I learned from uh, somebody that I look up to, a great mentor, she said to me that uh, one thing that, you, that you, you need to look at is one of the advantages as well is that you get into these bookstores right mm -hmm. but she said here's the thing you need to make sure fight skin tooth hair and nail to make sure that you're on the front cover there's a picture mm. of you because you're building your personal brand like that's the most important thing that's legacy that'll carry on mm. like some people have like covers where it's like you know a, a font or just like a, a fancy like cartoon design or something sure. where it's not them uh, and they're, they're losing out big time on building their personal brand in the process because it's you're just a name and names don't sit as much as names and faces, you know? So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, there's a few things that I've taken into Interesting. Account, for sure. Yeah, yeah. See, the, a funny thing, though, in Australia, in the Australian market, um, as an example, and, and most markets are a little bit different, publishers would never put the author on the photo, on the cover of a book. And, uh, and that was, whereas in America, it was very much, you know, the, you put your author photo, you know, your photo goes on the cover. And the publishers in Australia said, well, the Australian market doesn't like that. They don't like seeing, you know, you know what we're like here a little bit, tall poppy syndrome, rah, rah. That, um, and you know, go, seriously? But that's changed now. And I think people are more than comfortable to see the author photo on the front cover and, and the right stuff. So I, I do agree, Joel, certainly for you, man, you've got to have a big, you've got to be all over that book. And uh, I can't wait to read it. What's it going to be called? Thank you. Can we share that? I don't want to share that yet. yet. Okay, Just mate. For the no, sake I, of I understand and everything else, but sure, sure. Uh, right. Yeah, I'm, look, I'm excited. I really am. You know, I, 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 but I I'll have to write a testimonial. For you. 
Thank you, thank you. Yeah, you know that whole saying, uh, I think Steve Martin says it where he says, be so good they can't ignore you. I think when, you, when you're so good at what you do, you have that leveraging point. You have that bargaining power. You can say, no, I want to be on the front cover. I, I need this much of an advance. I'm building this team. I'm doing that. You know what I mean? Like you want to be in that yeah. place. And I, I think now, like you need to build. I've got addicted to success. That's my mothership. Yes. Right? It took me quite a few years to build it to the point that it is at right now. Uh, but I've got a team and I've got a ship and I've got, you know, I've got that platform to launch off. So if anybody's listening right now and you're writing a book or you want to get into that space, uh, you need to also have that platform that you can launch off as well because that's going to be super yeah. important. Awesome advice. And you're exactly right. A lot of people, they get the book done, write a book and they've got no platform. They've got nothing to leverage it, nothing to promote it. And it's much harder to make it work and to, you know, and to, you know, let it achieve the things you want it to do. And interesting what you said, and I really admire and love this fact, Joel, that, you know, you want to get the book and your book in the hands of as many people as possible because it's going to help them. It's going to change their life. It's going to make the world a better place. And that's the, the, the area to come from. I think when you're coming from the space of, oh, I'm going to sell a lot of books and make a million dollars, you know what? I, I just don't think it works that way. I, I, I find, you know, I don't really, I don't care about making $1 from my books. I certainly am not concerned about, you know, selling and making two bucks in royalties. It's not the way it works. Yes, I want to change the world, but I also want to use my book as a leveraging tool to, for bigger projects, for, you know, like it gives me more credibility to do bigger things. And, uh, and there's a little bit of a shift that has to happen. People get hot and sweaty about selling a few books on Amazon and all the rest of it. Yeah, it's nice. It's nice credibility, but, but you're underestimating the true value of your book in doing that at a social level um, as well as a financial level. Yes, yes. You know, this ties into my next question that I just had. Uh, so, so that there is a lot about, uh, let's say, oh, I want to be New York Times bestseller for the sake mm. of just being uh, well-known, which is okay, it's valid if you're building your brand and everything, but I think a lot of people do things for the sake of significance, right? You look mm. at Facebook nowadays and people are all over that just sharing photos and photos and photos of what they ate and uh, you know, they just bought this ticket for this and they just did that. It's You get the whole freaking, it's like an essay and, and a whole, uh, you know, snapshot of, of uh, you know, five five things that they've done for the day. So it's a huge significance thing. And your book that you released recently was uh, basically about we, 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 not me, 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 right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So what was something that you really pulled from writing that book? What is that that thing that you, you live by, that philosophy that you live by now because of your research and... Uh, writing of, of this book? Uh, from another a wonderful question, Joel. I think what really cemented for me in, in that particular thing was the importance of empathy. And I, I have really, I work daily to master that and this concept of putting myself in the shoes of other people. And, uh, and, and I consider that before I post something on Facebook, before I write an article, before I write a book, before I do a presentation, before I do a mentoring session, anything, before I do an interview like this, my thought is not, well, I'm going to tell my story. My thought is, what information can I share with your audience that's going to help them? And, uh, and, you know, who are they? You know, like, who are these people? How, how the thoughts are? Before I go on stage, my I have a little quiet mantra where I just kind of, it's a bit out there, but I kind of draw on the universe and I say, universe, help me to help the people in this room to achieve the things that they want to achieve, to to have a better life, to do whatever it might be. And, uh, and, and and I've been an advocate of empathy for a long time. And, and a lot of people talk about, oh, you've got to be empathetic, rah, rah. 
but I, for me, it's it's a mastery thing. I, I want to master empathy in my life. I, I want to be so good at understanding, you know, from the, the the guy driving the taxi to the airport to the to you know the leader of a huge company that I might be training in something or other, and uh, you know, and everything in between. I for me, um, empathy leads to kindness, that leads to, to generosity, that, that just leads to the most beautiful human qualities that, uh, I don't know, I just want more of all of that stuff in my life. And, uh, and the more empathetic I am with others, the more I, I don't know, I just feel this ex- extraordinary love and all these other things coming back. And I know that is a bit out there for some people, but it's certainly it, that becomes more and more important to me every year, Joel. So, yeah, mastering empathy is my my ambition now yes yes i love that you shared that you know it's interesting i was in india staying down in kerala uh Kanua, right uh this was a couple years back and i was staying at this beach house and on that same property there was a guy that would like cook and help out and everything great guy and and somebody rocked up in this little tuk-tuk and they were asking asking me really loudly in front of him where is your servant oh and really saying where's your servant and you know coming from the west when i was like well I was like, we don't have a servant. I'm like, uh, you know, this guy here, Raju, he like helps us and blah, blah, blah. And then I spoke to Raju after and I said to him, look, man, I'm sorry, you know, that this guy was calling you a servant. And he said, no, he said, it's an honor. I said, what do you yeah, mean? Right. He said, it's an honor to serve. And it's just like, it completely changed my, my perception. And it is like, I when love you step that. out on the stage, you're serving the audience. You're serving I- those people. Absolutely. Abs- it's such a great way of doing it. That's exactly how I feel. If I'm going to post something on Facebook, on, on LinkedIn, on you know, write an article for someone, it's that, that thought process. How can I – well, I don't think – I haven't asked that, how can I serve them? I ask, how can I help them? And, uh, but I like that concept, how can I serve these people? And it feels so, so real, so genuine. It feels that you – it's never a chore when you press send. You know, when you're trying to come up with this stuff because it just go, this is, it just, it just feels so wonderful to be able to help people. It's, it's a very cool story. Very cool story, mate. Yes, yes. Mm. Andy, uh, what books would you rececommend What has been some game-changing uh, reads that you've had? Man, I've read so many books over the years. Um, I, you know, one of the books, and this is, I guess, it, it says a lot about who I am and what I do as well. Uh, but, you know, Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People was one of the backbone books uh, for me. I, I don't really like the title. It, it, it sounds really um, salesy and, and manipulative and all the rest of it. But it's, a, it, it's one of the best books that, that I've ever read uh, in terms of really just how to, how to, how to engage people. And, and, you know, obviously the theme coming through from this, you know, our chat today is that's so important to me. But I read that book every Christmas. Christmas morning, I get up and I read Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People. It takes me a couple of hours and I've read it every day for the last 25 years. And uh, every Christmas day for the last 25 years. It's just a little ritual thing that I have developed. And and, and I will do it, hopefully, until the day I, I, I can't do it. You know, so so that is is a really interesting book. Um, I'm also a bit of a follower of Dr. John Izzo. I don't know if you've come across him at all. He's a Canadian guy, and uh, I've done a bit of work with John, and uh, and his book is uh, around um, like stepping up. is a really fabulous book about um, taking responsibility in your life, and and I and I like that. 
Um, one I'm reading at the moment, which I'm a big fan, and I, I know Brendan Burchard, and uh, and Brendan, you know, we've connected a little bit online. I've done a couple of his programs, and I really like his latest book, um, The Motivation Manifesto, uh, which is just, um, you know, I think it, it's just his writing and his topic has just gone to a whole other level. Um, so, you know, definitely, you know, that and God, I, this, man, honestly, I, I'm, you turn my house into a bookstore, you could hang a Dimmick sign or a Barnes and Noble out the front and it would literally be a, a bookshop. I've got so many books. I just gave away like 300 to, um, there's an indigenous literacy program in Australia where they'll take secondhand books and take them to remote Aboriginal communities, which is a great thing to do and, and rah, rah. So I have so many books on so many different topics. Um, yeah, that, that could be a 12-hour interview, I reckon, Joel. <laughs> That's awesome. I love that. You're a bit of a bookworm. I'm a bookworm too. You know, uh, my, friend, awesome. my friend put a, a, a picture quote up, shared this picture quote. I, I loved it. I laughed. It was like, um, it's... Uh, I said something like, I can't wait to the weekend. Uh, that's when I'm uh, I'm ready to party or something like that. Like, let's party. And she said, what I mean by let's party is let's read books. <laughs> such a nerd like quote, you know. I know, so, I know. And yeah. it's kind of interesting because, because I help so many people to write books. I get a copy of their books when they've written it. And I've got a special bookshelf that is just for the authors who I've helped to write books. And there's about 250, 300 books in there now, which is pretty cool. And uh, But, you know, they're everything from like The Naked Salon, which is a, a book that a, a dear friend of mine, Lisa Conway, wrote about how to run a hair salon better. And I've got another one, Honey, Let's Go Boating, from a crazy friend of mine in Melbourne who's written this book about, you know, about where to go boating around Melbourne. Um, you know, I just look in this bookshelf and it's Empowered for Life and um, The Co-Working Revolution and Bye Bye Bland. And, and I just write down through the Cosmopolitan Hippie. And these are books that I maybe I wouldn't have read in the past, but because I know the story in the background, I read them. And they're the most extraordinary reads in many cases. And, and in fact, a number of years ago, I had a friend of mine who was a rep for a big publishing company in Australia. And she, uh, once a month, she used to give me a box of books uh, that were samples and things. But all the covers had been torn off them and returned to the publishing company. So I got this box of books without any covers. And I would literally just pick up a book and start reading it. And uh, and it was in interesting to, to read it with no emotional attachment to a cover or what there's no back cover either. So there was all you knew was you had a pile of paper and pages and you started to read it. And, uh, and it really reinforced me. I read some of the best books I've ever read in my life through that and books that I would never have picked up in a million years, yet I didn't have my blinkers on. You know, I was, I was going into it with an open mind and I thought, wow, that was a, a nice metaphor for life in, uh, in many respects there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Some books you just, you need to be ready for it. And, and also you can sure. reread a book and be at a different point in your life and, and extract a way uh, different lesson from it or a lesson that you never knew existed within that book isn't that true I, I reread books all the time like honestly this Dale Carnegie book as I say I've read it 25 times at least and it's most of the time I always pick up something and I go how did I miss that the last 25 times and uh, and you're, you're so right it's all about where you are in, in your little timeline as to what resonates now and I think it's very very cool to go back and reread books There's a, I've, I've been going through rereading a lot of classics as well Treasure Island and Moby Dick and all those kind of ones and, and, and now looking at them through the eyes of a 50 year old instead of perhaps a, a 20 or 30 year old and going wow that's 
it's so different. My interpretation is so different. I find that with traveling as well. You know, I go to cities uh, or places um, in the States or whatever that I maybe haven't been to for 10 or 15 years. And the city probably hasn't changed that much in reality, yet my interpretation and my appreciation for it has changed so extraordinarily. And, uh, and I think that's another really nice feeling as well. Yeah, yeah. You, you travel quite a bit. I know that your books are in a lot of countries mm. out there and you've spoken in a lot of uh, different events. So what would be your best piece of travel advice? Uh, well, right on topic here, and I just I actually just wrote this as an article the other day, my best piece of travel advice came from me uh, going to India, funnily enough. And uh, and before I was going, everyone was saying, you know, I was there for work, my books were published over there, and I was doing a writing, an author tour. And, uh, and people said to me, oh, you know, don't eat the food and don't do this and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I went, oh, God. You know, I, I wasn't, I was a bit more open-minded than that. But a friend of mine said, the best piece of advice I can give you about India is to take a book everywhere you go because you're going to get stuck in lines. You're going to be in a queue. There'll be no reason, no logic, but you're not going to make it go any faster. You need to just stand in line and read your book and it will progress at, at its own pace. If you get angry and, and frustrated, it just won't work. And so I did. I took a book everywhere in me, with me in India and I read a lot. But I, I kept that skill and, and everywhere I go. So in my car, I've got a couple of books in my backpack. Um, in, when I'm traveling, I always have a few books. I have books everywhere. And uh, and that's the best bit of travel advice I'll give to anyone is to always have a book. Not, not something that can go get flat or you run out of batteries. Just carry a book with you. And, uh, and I've read more um, personal development, business books, etc. in five-minute increments waiting for an interview or waiting to go and see a client or, or stuck at an airport or whatever than, than probably anywhere else. So that's my number one travel tip. I absolutely love that. That is such a great advice. <laughs> and I know what India is like too. People are pushing in front of each other and it's like there are lines everywhere. So, uh, Isn't it hilarious? And no logical reason. You know, so they said to me, this chap said, when you get in customs, there'll be no one else in front of you, but you might have to wait an hour because that's just the way it's going to be because the guy is doing whatever he's doing and he will not be hurried no matter how much you kind of stare at him or complain or make gruff noises. He, you will get served when you get served and, uh, and, and, you know, learn to deal with it. And he was so right. It was great. Just wonderful advice. Yes. You know, I'm going to Delhi and Jaipur uh, in literally one month from now. So I'll be taking books. Don't worry about that. Uh, Thanks for that advice. Have you, been, have you been there before to the northern part of India? No. I've been to the south to like Goa and uh, right. Kerala. But Very yeah. cool. Very different and cold. So take your jumpers. It'll be really cold in the desert, freezing, like below zero. Yeah, yeah. So I never imagined that in that part of there. But, uh, and there's one of the most beautiful cities is uh, Udaipur, which is where they filmed James Bond, uh, Octopussy, I think it was, or one of those kind of movies. Right. And, uh, and it's, it's callous on a lake. It's just stunningly. It's a beautiful part of India. Wonderful, Andrew. Wonderful. Look, mate, I appreciate you being on this call. You know what? We've got so much value from everything that you've shared and we've covered a, a couple bases, uh, especially with entrepreneurship and uh, authoring books. So this has been a great interview. Now, we usually end this interview with uh, one mm -hmm. last question. Before we get to that one last question, uh, how can we reach out to you? Where, where are you online? How can we uh, get in touch with you? 
Thank you, John. I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed our conversation, I might add as well, mate. Um, easiest thing to do is for people, they can just check out my website, uh, www.andrewgriffiths.com.au or .com works as well. And uh, check out my website. I'm really proud of it. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's a pretty wild website, I think. Oh, it's an excellent website. You know, it's one of the best websites I've seen. Hands down, I've seen a lot of websites. So go to andrewgriffiths.com.au and check it out because... One thing that really stood out to me, Andrew, as well, is uh, that you're so personable. You're so authentic and personable, and you kind of like a little bit, kind of like you have a bit of a laugh about yourself, and you have a bit of laugh about life <laughs> on it. And um, yeah, I like the little jokes and the little like you know the the pictures, the visuals, and everything you use. And you know, if you're listening right now and you are looking at building your personal brand, if you've got a website that's up, go and have a look at Andrew's because I think it's a great benchmark. It's a great place to start to look at and go, well. Don't don't compare completely, but uh, see what he's doing. He's being courageous with stepping out as being himself and being authentic and being different, which is what we were talking about earlier. So, love it, man. Mm, thank Absolutely you. Love it. Thank you, mate. Really appreciate that. Yeah, excellent. All right, Andrew. So we end the interview with this this last question. His question is: If you were to deliver your last thirty second speech to the world, what would that last thirty seconds sound like? Mm, what a great question. Okay. Um, for me, okay, it would be go through life making every single interaction that you have with another human being, animal, wilderness, whatever it might be, make every single interaction count. You know, be deeply curious about everything. Be patient, be kind, meet everyone with an open mind and encourage them to share their story. Be interested enough to... to, to to ask people to tell you their story, uh, it means everything to me. And a lot of time, you know, the big stories come out, which is gold, and we hear about the big famous people. But I, I think that often the diamonds are found in the casual conversation with a stranger on a plane or the taxi driver or, you know, the person standing in a line, whatever it might be, in that special little moment when no one else is around. But uh, make every single interaction count.